Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about a very common psychic ailment, perfectionism. Sometimes you hear people talk about perfectionism like it's a good thing. But that may be a bit of a misunderstanding in my view. It's great to have high standards, of course. It's yet another thing to be so obsessive about the outcome of your work that you drive yourself and everybody around you totally nuts. Or to be so afraid of failure that you refuse to try anything new at all. In this episode, we're gonna get some strategies for managing perfectionism from a very smart and successful person who has uh, struggled mightily with perfectionism himself. Adam Grant is, I'm happy to say, a frequent flyer on this show. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of five books that have sold millions of copies and been translated into 35 languages. Those books include Think Again, Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. He's an organizational psychologist who has been the top-rated professor at Wharton for seven years in a row. He's also the host of a newish podcast, which everybody should go check out. It's called Rethinking with Adam Grant. And that's in addition to his other chart-topping podcast called Work Life. In this conversation, we talked about Adam's definition of neurotic versus normal perfectionism and whether either is a healthy state of being, why he thinks we're seeing a rise in perfectionism amongst younger people, strategies for managing perfectionism, a different metric for measuring the quality of our work, the importance of finding the right judges of our work, and reimagining our relationship to failure by setting a failure budget, that's his term. Then we pivot to a not unrelated issue, procrastination, and some strategies for managing that very common, very thorny problem. And within that conversation, Adam holds forth on the difference between procrastination and what he personally suffers from, which is precrastination. Also, stay tuned for the end of the interview where Adam asks me to give him a grade on his performance, which then turns into a very interesting personal conversation. The whole thing is great, but in my opinion, that's the best part. We'll get started with Adam Grant right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free. 
for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. Adam Grant, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dan Harris. I think it's going to be a treat to be back here, but I'm also keenly aware of how dangerous it is dangerous it is to predict even the immediate future. So I feel pretty confident you're going to be correct in that prediction. Let me also say it right here at the outset. Congratulations on your new show. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations on your stellar TED Talk. Oh, I appreciate that. I was basking in the reflected glory of live. And then I think I've only done this a handful of times. I rewatched it when it came online. It was that good. Thank you. I should say, because I haven't said this publicly, but you know, you are, well, I have called you in public before, an apostle of generosity. You, you wrote the great book, Give and Take, and you, behind the scenes, with no foreseeable credit, reached out to me when you heard I was giving a TED Talk, offered to give me notes. I rehearsed live in front of you, gave me really good notes that I then integrated into the talk. So thank you for that. You just dramatically overstated my contribution. And I, <laughs> I was just trying to pay forward the generosity of people who suffered through many terrible versions of my early TED Talk attempts. So, no, I was so impressed with the wisdom and the humor and the delivery from someone who claims to be an anxious person. <laughs> it was just, it was masterful. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Well, let's get some wisdom out of you. You had an episode not on your new podcast, but on your pre-existing podcast called Work Life. And you did an episode that I wanted to kind of get you to talk about here because it's such a resonant issue on perfectionism. It was a great episode. Maybe let's start our conversation by getting you to talk about your own history with perfectionism. 
Are you trying to make me 10% unhappier right now? <laughs> Always. Always. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Dan, I didn't know I was a perfectionist until I started diving. Springboard kind, not scuba kind. And I had a huge problem with what's called balking, where you walk down the board, you jump to the end, and then you're supposed to take off. But I would stop at the end. It's kind of like a, a baseball pitcher who box, right? They start their motion and then they, they don't complete it. And so I would, like, I would walk down the board, I'd leap to the end, and then kind of chicken out. And I'd, I'd back up and start over, and I'd do it over and over again. And sometimes I'd waste a good 45 minutes or an hour of practice, and we only had one diving board. So my teammates were standing there getting mad at me, and my coach, who was just infinitely patient, was occasionally a little bit frustrated. And I thought it was because I was afraid. I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of smacking, belly flop, or landing flat on my back. It hurts. I was afraid of getting lost in midair. I had a lot of fear as a diver. And I had no business diving, I think, based on those fears. But Eric, my coach, explained to me that my balking was driven by something else, which was perfectionism. I was like, what are you talking about? I, I think I was 14. And he said, well, when, when you don't like your approach... When you're off balance or you feel like you've missed the rhythm of the board, you've concluded it's already too late to do a perfect dive, so why should I bother trying? I need to start over. And that was a light bulb moment for me. How do you define perfectionism? In psychology, I think we, we normally define perfectionism as the desire to be flawless, to, to have zero deficiencies, zero defects, to create an image of being superhuman. And you've already made a pretty robust nod in this direction, but what are the downsides inclusive of balking? <laughs> well, you waste a lot of time on things that don't matter. I was trying to perfect one dive and then failing to practice 30 others, right? So I think there's a danger of losing the forest in the trees. There's a lot of evidence that perfectionists are more prone to burnout than the rest of us, as well as depression. And some of that comes from just the the obsessive effort to try to, to improve to a standard that's unattainable and feeling like your expectations are so unreasonably high that no matter how good you get, there's always a gap between where you are and where you want to be. So if you ask a perfectionist, like, when were you happiest with your performance? Usually the answer you get is tomorrow, I hope. <laughs> Another downside is that it leads to a lack of risk-taking and diminishes creativity. I see this a ton with my students. Every year, I have students who are card-carrying perfectionists. And usually I see it when they not only come in to class with their resumes showing that they have a 4.0, but they also still put their high school grades on their, their college resumes. And they have a 4.0 then too. Actually, they usually have a 4.08 or 4.09 because they got A-pluses or they got extra credit or they had weighted GPAs. And sometimes they... They will cry if they get an A minus and feel like they failed in life. And one of the unfortunate consequences of wanting to be perfect is you focus on predictable successes, right? You do things where you can guarantee that you're going to ace the project or you're going to get 100 on the quiz. And that means that you don't stretch out of your comfort zone. You don't take classes that might challenge you uh, where you might God forbid, get an A minus, right? You don't experiment creatively. You basically do the things you've already mastered and you end up with a narrower and narrower field of competence over time. 
on the show, you talk about the difference between normal versus neurotic perfectionism. What's what's the distinction? Normal perfectionism is aiming for extremely high standards of excellence and basically having a positive vision of the future that you're trying to reach for. <laughs> neurotic perfectionism is basically fear of failure, kind of walking around believing that everyone is going to find out that you're flawed, that you're defective, and just dealing with tremendous amounts of anxiety around wanting to not fall short of other people's standards, not let other people down. And I think that, obviously, when we study the two, neurotic perfectionism is, is even unhealthier than normal perfectionism. Not that normal perfectionism is necessarily healthy. Is there any evidence that either or both of these flavors of perfectionism is on the rise? Yes. So Tom Curran is a, a psychologist who's spent most of his career studying perfectionism. And what he shows is that since, I think since the late 1980s, there's been a steady increase in perfectionism. You can see this in the US, in the UK, in Canada. And what's powerful about his analysis is you get surveys of people at the same stage in life. So we look at high school students or college students who are 17 or 20, and then you can compare, okay, what were the high school and college students of the early 90s like from a perfectionism standpoint compared to the high school or college students of today? And there has been a pretty consistent rise over a couple decades. A lot of people blame this on social media, and I think it's likely the case that social media has contributed to the trend. But it started a generation before social media existed. And in, in Tom's data, I think there, there are two factors that, that we know were at least part of the story. One is extremely harsh parental criticism, and another is strong pressure from parents to succeed. And so, yeah, I think we've, we've raised a generation of kids who feel like they can't live up to their parents' ideals, and their parents are brutal when they don't. What do you think is going on with the parents that they're imposing this pressure that may not have even existed for them? I don't know. You're a parent, Dan. What are you doing to your kids? <laughs> I was having a conversation with my son this morning, who's about to turn eight, about drum lessons. Because he's he was very excited at the beginning of drum lessons. He's got a drum set in his room. I love playing the drums. and But he, he's now kind of there's a definite like lassitude that is seeping into his attitude about practicing or going to the lessons. And I'm trying to figure out, like, do I, uh, he even says, I know if I quit, I'll regret it. So how hard do I push him? Do I let him quit? And then will he regret it? Yeah. So I'm, I wrestle with this all the time. I, I definitely feel your pain. We've, we've gone through that a bunch of times with our kids. And I think that, so I think you're hitting on one of the one of the reasons why parents have maybe pushed too hard, which is they're trying to teach grit. They're encouraging their kids to be persistent, to not be quitters, sometimes failing to realize that, <laughs> that grit is not about continuing to do something you hate, right? It's about committing to a goal, working to try to reach the goal, and then at some point asking yourself, is this goal still achievable? And is it still something that I'm excited to pursue? I think that, you know, An Angela Duckworth and I have talked a lot about this, and one of the things... We, we debated for a long time and, and ultimately <laughs> ended up on the same page about after I think a decade of arguments, which were delightful, was that when we think about grit, we should think about it broadly in terms of goals and values, not narrowly in terms of a task or an activity. So if we take your son, Dan, it would be probably unhealthy to encourage him to be 
to be persistent about becoming a, a great drummer. It would be healthier to encourage him to persist with music and say, okay, if drums isn't your cup of tea, I'm mixing metaphors here, but <laughs> if the drums aren't your preferred instrument, let's think about the saxophone or the violin. Maybe even healthier would be to say, I would love for you to have an artistic or creative outlet for self-expression. And so you could try another musical instrument, but you could also try performing as a magician. You could also try dancing. You could try art. And you could even broaden that further, right? And ask, okay, I want you to have a chance to excel at something. Maybe at some point we find out that the arts are not what energize you, but, you know, maybe we should look at debate. Maybe we should look at chess, right? Like, And that, I think, as you broaden the spectrum of possible goals beyond just a specific activity, it becomes healthier then to encourage persistence and allow kids to walk away from something that they're maybe not perfect at. What do you make of that? I like it a lot. I feel a little validated because my wife and I, in this conversation with our son this morning, said to him, hey, if, if drums aren't the thing, we can do piano lessons. And I don't want to pick on this case too much because, but this issue is universalizable. I mean, the way Bianca and I are talking to Alexander, this is the way all of us could talk to ourselves on this issue of our levels of persistence that we can say to ourselves, okay, set a goal, go for it, but keep reassessing along the way. Is this the right goal? It doesn't mean you take your foot off the pedal in terms of the amount of energy you're giving to forward momentum. It's about where is the steering wheel pointed? Oh, that's a great metaphor. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Let's talk about perfectionism because you, you go way beyond bemoaning the problem. You talk a lot about how to manage it. I'm going to tee you up to discuss some of the strategies you have discussed. The first is to recognize that excellence doesn't require perfection. Can you say more about that? I can try. So I think what, what probably crystallized this for me was as a diver, You've, you've seen the Olympics. You probably, I guess, you probably would think of Greg Louganis as, a, <laughs> as an archetype. And the phrase you always hear from announcers is perfect tense. Well, if you spend any time in the diving world, you will know that that is a misnomer. Because if you look at the Olympic judging rulebook, a 10 is not for perfection. It's for excellence. In other words, you can do a flawed dive and still get straight tense. And, <laughs> well, what does that mean? Well... It means that you did a dive so well that we believe it was up to the highest possible standards that humans can achieve. But we know there's still a gap between how good that was and our ideal of what a flawless dive would look like. So you could have jumped higher. You could have spun faster. You could have folded yourself into a tinier ball. You could have had a, a better rip entry where, you know, you, you made that sound when you hit the water and then... You just, there wasn't even a tiny little splash. You just disappeared. You could have pointed your, your toes a little bit more, right? But the dive was good enough to be considered truly excellent. And you've done it as well as, as anybody in the world is capable of doing it. Well, when you understand that, you can apply that to any domain of your life, right? You can say perfection is zero flaws. Excellence is an extremely high standard. It's attainable for me uh, that either gets me to a level that I could be proud of uh, or gets me to a level that I know other people would be proud of me, even if I have a hard time being proud of myself. And so you want to calibrate your standard of what does excellence look like? How good would I have to be in order to be satisfied? I like that a lot. And it doesn't feel 
when you use words like excellence, it doesn't feel like you're lowering the bar. The second strategy you've talked about is measuring your excellence in terms of your progress. Well, I think this one is something that a lot of people talk about and very few people do, right? I think when we think about standards of excellence, we normally compare ourselves to others. And it's, it's often said that comparison is a thief of joy. I think that that seems to be empirically true. But sometimes comparison is, is real fuel for motivation. We know, for example, that having a role model in, in your field or in your sport or in your, in your chosen career actually leads you to set a higher goal and aim for a, a more ambitious standard than if you didn't have the role model because it elevates your idea of what's possible. And so I'm not completely against social comparison, but I think we want to spend more time on self-comparison. I think that when we think about measuring progress, I, as a diver, I never got a 10. I was a, a serious competitive diver for six years, and I think the highest score I ever got once was an eight and a half. And that's kind of sad, right? Like I poured six years of my life into this activity and like I was a point and a half away from the highest standard of excellence. Well, what made me satisfied with that was when I started out, I was getting solid fours and four and a halves on easy dives. And then I would sit down with, with Eric and we would, we would set a goal for, okay, can we get this dive to a five, five and a half level? Can we get harder dives? And then can we try to get the fives and five and a halves on those too? And then can we start to aim for six and six and a halves on your basic voluntary dives? And as you make those comparisons, like I, I remember finishing a meet about a year in and feeling kind of bummed that I didn't get any sixes. And Eric said, how would you have felt last year? If you'd gotten a bunch of fives and five and a halves, I would have thrown a party, Dan. <laughs> that, would, that would have been a new peak for me. And so I think if, if you compare your current performance to your past self, it's a lot easier to see the progress you've made. Yes, that's deeply sane advice, in my opinion. The third strategy you talk about is to find a group of judges who you trust. Thing I miss most about diving, every single time I got out of the water, I got a score. And in life, we don't get that, right? You don't, you don't have three people sitting next to you watching you do not only performances, but also practices and saying, hey, I give that one a seven and a half. Here are two things you could do to get an eight next time. But we could have those people. I, I've recruited those people. They're now vital to, to everything I do that I care about. So I guess my, my judging committee, podcast is a, is a good example of this, actually. When I, when I started podcasting, what, almost five years ago, we took a draft of an episode, a first draft, and I gave it to a bunch of students. And I said, please rate this on a scale from zero to 10. And nobody gave it a 10. And then my question was, how do I get closer to 10? What are the biggest changes that you think would, would close the gap there? And what I, I found really powerful about that is when somebody gave a seven, um, I wasn't aiming for a 10 as a podcaster. I was new to it. And I also think podcasting as a medium that allows us to make a lot of mistakes. And that's part of the authenticity of the conversation. And so I had a, a, a target in mind, which is I wanted to be in the eight range as a new podcaster. And so if I got a seven from the majority of my students, I would know I could tweak, right? And make relatively incremental changes. When they gave me a three and a half, like, okay, we need to go back to the drawing board. New topic, new guests, new host. <laughs> Something radical needs to change. And I think having people who can hold up that mirror is invaluable because it allows you to figure out whether you need a, a radical overhaul uh, or whether you can really move into fine-tuning. So Dan, I want to hear about your judging process. How do you gauge the quality of your work? 
Well, before I answer that question, let me just ask a clarifying question. And I promise this isn't a dodge. I will go back to it. I feel like we do live in a society where we are being judged quite a bit. It's, it's almost like in social media, it's like we're living in a panopticon where we're where we can never have any privacy and everything we post we're constantly fretting about how many likes and comments we get etc cetera, etc cetera. so what's the difference between that kind of unhealthy sense of being judged and the healthy curated chosen voluntary judgment that you are foisting upon yourself oh Oh, such a good clarification. Actually, more than a clarification, it's a correction. If I could borrow a line from the philosopher Happy Gilmore, you're right. I was wrong. You're smart. I'm stupid. You're good looking. I am not attractive. No, Dan, I, I think I, I think I should have been really clear. I'm not talking about formal judges, right, who are scoring you. I'm talking about the, you know, the informal judging I got from my coaches. They were there giving me a score as feedback to help me, not as an attack or a criticism. And I think that's the difference. I think you want to be judged not by critics. A critic is somebody who, I think this is what, what drives people mad on social media, a critic is somebody who, who basically sees your worst self <laughs> and then eviscerates it. A coach is somebody who tries to see you accurately and then help you close the distance between your current self and your best self. And that kind of feedback, it's not discouraging, it's empowering, right? I, I remember, I don't want to overuse diving examples, but it's just, the precision is so relevant here. I remember doing one of my favorite dives. It was just a yeah, basic front one and a half. You go up, you do a somersault, and then you dive in. And I had gotten into the point where I consistently got seven, seven and a half, sometimes eights on it. And I did one in practice and I popped out of the water and it, it felt really good. And Eric just looked at me and he said, Adam, that was bad. <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. It was so bad that he, would, he couldn't even bring himself to score it. And I just, I did almost everything wrong. And it was like three years back in terms of my, the quality of that dive. And it was like, normally somebody telling you your performance was bad hurts your ego. But it was so clear that Eric's sole goal was to help me achieve my goals that he made it really easy to laugh at myself. And I think that that, that is what your ideal judging committee does, right? Is, is they're there to yeah, to, to have your back and, and help you grow in a way that, that feels incredibly supportive and developmental. All right, so I, I let you dodge a bunch. I want to I hear about how you, how you do quality control. Well, just to, to amplify the point and then answer the question, I think we can curate a group of coaches externally and we can cultivate internally a coach who, where we can talk to ourselves to the best of our ability in a way that ups our game rather than degrades our resilience and self-esteem. Having said that, I still struggle with this and I can very much fall back into a sort of math-oriented self-assessment, like how many likes did that tweet get? How many views did this video get? That kind of sort of obsessive stock market of me approach really, I find it's never good. I can maybe once in a while there's a dopamine hit of something doing well, but there's just mostly it's a recipe for comparison and suffering. And so the best self-assessment 
for me, really is in conversation. You know, when I'm talking to the six producers who work on the show about how can we do better, when I'm talking to my wife, who's really the, my most valuable source of input, I feel like I, in those conversations, that's when I can get the clearest view on how I'm doing on any given endeavor. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think one of the questions that that always comes up at this point is, well, how do you make sure that you're receptive to it, right? I, I remember my wife, Allison, at one point reading a draft of one of my articles and saying, this is boring. <laughs> like, you know what? I am so lucky to have someone in my life who loves me enough to tell me the truth. Yes, yes. You know, I reread it and I was like, yeah, this is kind of boring. I need to start over. But, you know, sometimes we all get defensive and we even get defensive when we know the person loves us and is trying to help us. And Sheila Heen and Doug Stone gave me a name for something that I've been doing for a long time, but I didn't, I didn't have a vocabulary for it. They wrote in, in Thanks for the Feedback about what they called a second score, which is the idea that when somebody gives you feedback or coaching, they've already determined the first score in their head, right? They've already determined that you got a B minus or a C plus. And you spend all this time trying to fight it, right? And, and you're, you're kind of grade grubbing and saying, no, like that article you called boring, it's extremely important and you didn't get to the engaging part. And I actually think it deserves an A minus. Well, guess what? There's nothing I can say that's going to change Allison's view that the article was boring because she's reacting to the article, not, <laughs> not my argument about the, about the article. So what Sheila and Doug said is you should give yourself a second score, which is how well you took the first score. And basically say, I want to get an A plus for how well I handled the B minus. And I, I, I didn't, until I read it, I didn't realize, but I've been doing that for a lot of my professional life. And it, it's, it's just so helpful, right? Because I end up in these situations where like, I'll, I'll read the, the criticism from my students out loud in mid-course feedback. And I, I sit there thinking, like, I don't like these comments. <laughs> they don't make me feel good. They they call in some cases they they lead me to question whether I should be a teacher at all. And then, you know, I think, but I don't want to argue with them because those are their reactions. What I want to do is I want to ace how well I learn from their reactions. And I think that for me is just an, an invaluable habit to build. I love that. I love that. I had an experience recently. I I'm actually four and a half years into writing my next book, and I thought it was going to be coming out now, but it won't be coming out for 12 to 18 months in no small part because I sent a rough draft to a half dozen people a couple of months ago, and the feedback was brutal, really brutal, way more brutal than I thought. These were all coaches, not critics. And I really wanted to show in that process that I could handle it. And now I'd often hang up the phone and have to lie down because I was just so devastated by the feedback. But I feel like really doing a thing that I wouldn't have been able to name at the time, which is wanting to be an A-plus at receiving the feedback, allowed me to hear way more things than had I been in, de in a debating mode. I'm sorry the feedback was brutal. I'm a little disappointed in you for not sending me the draft because I've been excited to read the book. <laughs> and I think I even offered to read a draft. I'm like, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't make Dan's cut. <laughs> You're going to make the next cut, I promise, because I'm going to, this project is going to require way more coaching as I go. But let me, let me, before I lose the thread here, let me get to the fourth, and then I have some other questions to ask you about potential strategies. But the fourth strategy that you've listed, publicly at least, is don't focus on everything you did wrong. Again, this is advice for perfectionists. Can you say more about that? 
Yeah, this is, this is another thing I learned from Eric Best, who I think is the world's greatest diving coach. Eric would, he would come, I would come out of the water and he'd say, I just want you to focus on one thing to improve. The funny thing about diving is an entire dive takes about two seconds. And yet you can make a list as a, just off the top of your head of 80 or 90 things that had to go well in order to execute the dive. And so you can have a long list of things you want to fix. And what happens is you try to fix all of them and you fix none of them because we can only focus on one thing at a time. I think that there are computers that are really good at parallel processing, but last time I checked in, humans are serial processors. And so Eric was really good about pushing me and saying, listen, you may be right. You're actually wrong about half the things you thought you needed to change. I have eyes on the dive, you don't. But I, I think that what's most important for elevating the dive is just, I want you to slow down your walk down the board. And that's going to change how the takeoff goes. And everything else will flow differently from that. And let's get your pacing right. And once you've mastered that to the point that you can do it on autopilot and that's second nature for you, then we'll go to the next change on the list. And I think that this is something we could apply to, to probably all walks of our lives, right? That a lot of us, we make these mental notes and your inner critic is very good at just bombarding you with all the things you screwed up and what made you bad. And... If you try to fix them all at once, you're really never going to make real progress. So I think my, my read of the evidence is we probably max out at being able to make somewhere between two and three changes <laughs> in, in a given day or week. But that's going to vary depending on how automatic versus conscious the skill is and how much practice you have and the quality of the coaching around you. But I've landed at a place where after I do any kind of performance, whether I'm giving a speech or getting feedback on a, a draft, I've just started asking people, what is the one thing that's most important for me to improve? And then if I ask enough people, right, I'll, I'll end up with a longer list. But the number of people who, you know, who pick talk slower, right, which was a really frequent comment in my teaching and speaking early on. The fact that everybody listed that as a, a critical change meant that that was going to be my focus. And I wasn't going to worry about all the other stuff until I learned to sometimes tell a story. <laughs> and not talking the pace where I, I tend to get really excited about something and then nobody can follow what I'm saying and I sometimes even get lost. <laughs> this reminds me of, I had, when I first got to ABC News in the year 2000, I had a great boss. Her name is Amy Antelis. She's actually now quite a revered figure in the documentary world. And I used to go to her for advice about my anchoring of the news. We all consume news anchors and probably don't think much about the art or skill of it, but it actually is a really deep practice. And there are so many things. How are you holding your hands? How do you look? What kind of clothes are you choosing? What pace do you, at which pace do you speak? How are you at reading the teleprompter? How are you at asking really good questions on the fly? How are you at reacting to your co-hosts on the set? There are so many things going on at any given moment on a news desk. And that's a real art. And it's not unlike diving. There are 90 things you can come up with. But when I would go to Amy and we would watch tapes together, she would always just give me two or three very simple things. You're moving your hands too much. You're ending your questions with the word right question mark instead of actually formulating a question. And then I would just work on those and then come back and watch the tape again. And she would just give me a few more. So long way of saying that this fourth strategy you're listing really lands well with me. Coming up, Adam Grant on how to think about external measures of success, ways to reimagine your relationship to failure. And we pivot to the not unrelated topic of procrastination. And he's got some strategies for dealing with that. 
Keep it here. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. Before we close out our discussion of perfectionism and move on to procrastination, which is not an unrelated topic, there's a phrase that kept surfacing in my mind as I prepared to do this interview with you. And it's a Buddhist phrase, so it's not very mellifluous, but it's non-attachment to results. In other words, the argument is you can work your ass off and know that that's the variable you can control, how hard you're working, et cetera, et cetera. But you, the world is so entropic that you can't control how the result is going to look or be received that you need to practice this kind of non-attachment. Does that land for you? It does. It does. Although I think my challenge with attachment, I wrote about this a little bit in, in ch- what chapter three of Think Again, if I remember correctly, is it's it's a really important skill. It's a very difficult one to build mm-hmm. and exercise in the moments where you need it most. I, I feel like it's kind of like saying, Dan, just take take all the goals that you've ever had held dear um, that link to your core values and your deepest sense of self. And then just say like, you know what? doesn't really matter. I don't care. Well, let me push back gently. I read it differently. It's not like, let's just take this book that I yammer on about all the time. So I'm going to, in in some, it'll be six or seven years by the end of it. And, and I can get very tightly wound around how's it going to be received. And I will care, but I can know that there's so much out of my control that if I care too much, it will reduce my resilience and uh, reduce my ability to move on to the next project when it's over. I agree with that. So maybe maybe I want to edit a little bit the idea of attachment to results. I think you should be attached to the result you control. I think you should care about writing a book you're proud of, right? And what you're trying to detach to is then the uncontrollable, what kind of market reaction is it going to get? What are readers going to think? Is it going to hit all the bestseller lists? Is it going to be number one? How many weeks will it stay? Right? Like those metrics are not going to help anyone to focus on those. And so 
I don't think of those as your results. I think of those as a byproduct of your result. Those are more about how the work is received than the result you produced. Okay, so that's actually, I think, very helpful because it's a kind of a reinforcement and a clarifying of the way I articulated this initially is the results you can be attached to is the quality of your work. The results you should not be attached to is how other people perceive the quality of your work and how it does in the marketplace. Yeah, I think I think we're aligned there. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that... Um, you know, I, I learned I learned something from your TED talk, by the way, which is let me let me correct that. I learned a lot of things from your TED talk, but one of the things I really admired was when you paused and took a sip of water, and you know, kind of choked up. And I've always been the person who's afraid to be vulnerable like that on stage because I don't want to look like I'm you know I'm not prepared or I'm not competent. And I I was really moved by how candid you were. And it really reinforced how like, how much what you were sharing is kind of like heart and soul material, right? Not just head material. And so I'm uh, I'm trying to trying to express more humanity as opposed to be a performance robot. I think, yeah, I think that you still need to care about what other people think of your work, in part because there are, you're not just writing a book for yourself. Right? I remember talking to John Green about this. And John saying something to the effect of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in my own words, but like, not caring about anybody else's reaction to your book is a journal, not a book. <laughs> you don't need to publish it. You're writing that for you, right? And if you choose to put it out into the world, you're making a gift for readers. And so, of course, you want them to love it. And that feedback is meaningful. You can learn things from it. You can apply them to your next book. Uh, but... I think where we get into trouble is when that reaction from the audience supersedes our own judgment of whether we met our standard. And when the reaction from strangers overrides the feedback from people we know and trust whose judgment we care about more. So I guess I want you to detach from, <laughs> tell, me, tell me if you, if, you, if you find this to be a, a reasonable middle ground. I want you to detach from the uncontrollable reactions of uh, strangers who are not necessarily your intended audience or not trying to give you constructive feedback. And I want you to stay attached to the, the people who are the audience you're writing for or are in a good position to, to know what would help you in the future. I think that's an excellent further refinement. And I think it, it just goes back to this process that you talk about as a way to... to handle perfectionism, which is curate a group of really good coaches who you're sharing your work with, because that is a form of caring about what other people think. And it is, but it's a, it seems like a healthy form of it. And control that variable as much as possible all the way until you release your work into the world or do your dive. And just don't be super attached to the random comments from assholes on Twitter. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I think that that is spot on. Unless, of course, those Twitter assholes happen to be experts on your content. Yes. And yes. know something that could, could figure into the paperback. Yes. <laughs> no, fair, fair enough. There's another point you've made that I, I want to give you a chance to hold forth on here, which is having a reimagined relationship with failure. Oh, yeah. So this is actually why I started podcasting. So I, let's go back, it's 2017. 
I've published three books in four years. And I'm kind of at a crossroads of what do I want to do next? And I realize I am spending most of my time sharing things I already know. I teach classes I've taught before. I give keynote speeches I've given before. I write articles on research I've already done and other people's studies I've already read. And I don't feel like I'm learning. And I realized what was happening was I was basically doubling down on the things that were working. And I was repeating the tasks that were giving me positive reinforcement. And they were great dopamine hits. And it also felt like I was making a contribution. Like when people seem to enjoy a talk, when, when teaching evaluations were, were encouraging, when somebody told me, hey, this book really made a difference. And what was happening was I was falling into the perfectionist trap of kind of a, a limited circle of, of competence. And I wasn't taking any risks. And I decided that I wanted to have an excuse that was built into my schedule for learning. And I thought, if I start a podcast, then instead of just teaching things that I've already learned, and instead of asking an audience to learn from me, they can actually learn with me in real time as I talk to people who know things that I don't and are knowledgeable about areas that I'm really curious about. And it was a huge risk because I didn't know how to promote a podcast. I didn't know whether anyone would want to listen to my voice. It's a different kind of relationship with the audience than I've ever had before. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work. And I hesitated and I waffled. And the reason I decided to go for it is I had set myself a failure budget, which was sort of a quota for how many times I was allowed to fail in a given year. And I realized that if my rate of failure was zero, that that meant that I wasn't, I wasn't challenging myself and I wasn't growing enough. And so I said, I want to have, in a typical year, I want to have three projects that fail. Meaning I didn't just get a six when I was aiming for a seven. I got a three. And that, that means I am experimenting. I am pushing myself to stretch and evolve. And I think we could probably all benefit from, <laughs> from having that kind of failure budget because when something doesn't go well, like I had a, an op-ed that, that bombed recently and I also had two academic articles rejected, which 20 years in, <laughs> I'm like, at what point do I actually become fully capable? When that happened, like two rejections, great. I get to put those on my failure quota, check. As opposed to saying, oh no, those episodes of failing make me feel like I'm a failure. And I've, I've found that to be enormously helpful. It seems like a key distinction in there is the project can fail without you telling yourself a story about you being a failure. Exactly. And then I can analyze why did the project fail? Did the project fail because it was a poor fit with my interests and skills? Did it fail because I failed to surround myself with the right collaborators? Did it fail because I had too much on my plate? Did it fail because I didn't invest enough effort in, in trying to learn what I needed to know to make it effective? Did it fail because I had bad luck? I have a, a friend who released what he says is the book he's proudest of on September 10th, 2001. I mean, no, no one heard about the book, let alone read it. And it would be terrible if he felt like a failure in that situation, right? So I think it's also an opportunity to think about the role of luck and opportunity and realize a big part of failure is, is forces out of your control, but there are always things you could have done, right, to increase your odds of success. And so let's, let's take away the lessons from that and then say, if I'm going to do another project in this realm, or if I'm going to take a risk on a, a completely different kind of project, what should I take away that will help me do better next time? 
I'm filing this away. <laughs> Try it at your own risk. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about a not unrelated subject, which is procrastination. Let's just start with a definition. How do you define procrastination? All right, so the, the formal definition in psychology is delaying a task, even though you expect that the delay will have a cost. Interestingly, your personal issue was not procrastination. It was precrastination. I am a recovering precrastinator, Dan. It's true. What is precrastination? In college, I finished my senior thesis a few months early, and my roommates found that extremely irritating. <laughs> I'm the person who, when something is important to me, I dive into it immediately, and I want to finish it way ahead of schedule. What's so bad about that? Well, I, I didn't think anything was bad about it at first. I was like, yes, I'm not stressed. I am constantly surprising people by under-promising and over-delivering. I now have all this free time because I, I'm not scrambling to meet a deadline. I don't pull all-nighters. Never pulled an all-nighter in my life. I'm like, this is great. And then I had a student, Jihishin, who told me that she had her most creative ideas when she was procrastinating. And I said, this is, this is actually fascinating. We should test this. And I challenged her to figure out if she could gather data on it. And lo and behold, it turned out that people like me, procrastinators, who don't put things off, are less creative than people who sometimes procrastinate. Because I plunge in with the first idea instead of waiting for the best idea. Oops. So this is linked to perfectionism. It is. It is. I think the earlier I start, the more I can perfect what I'm doing. And if I wait, I'm going to fall behind and maybe I'm going to run out of time and then it's, it's going to be defective. At the same time, though, people on the, I think both extremes actually can be influenced by perfectionism. Neurotic perfectionists procrastinate a lot. They tend to be chronic procrastinators. And that's because they're constantly worrying that things are never going to be good enough. And so they, they have a hard time motivating themselves to start. They feel like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not capable. I haven't prepared. This isn't my moment. And also then, at some point, it becomes kind of a, a coping strategy, right? To say, okay, whenever I start, I will use the entire window. And so if, this is, if I'm writing a paper, if I started a month in advance, I will work on it for a month. And this paper... <laughs> it probably only needs a day. And so I'm going to wait until the last day and then, you know, it'll, it'll become better for my time management, even though it's terrible for my stress and anxiety. My wife has in her an excellent book about imposter syndrome and she's starting to work on it in earnest. But I can see some of this happening for her, this neurotic perfectionism. Like I can't, I'm not ready yet or I can't write until like, the, the conditions are perfect. I can't just sneak it in into the interstices of the day, which is my strategy. Anyway, does that, does that all sound like a, a germane <laughs> to you? Yeah, I, th I think your wife should write that book for sure. And I think she should write it now. So I have a couple of reactions to that. The first one is just to, to one more callback to diving. I procrastinated a ton on new dives because those were the scariest and also the hardest to perfect. And one day I literally stood on the board shaking for almost an hour. And Eric finally just said, Adam, are you going to do this dive? And I was like, ever? <laughs> yes, one day I will do this dive. And he said, great, then what are you waiting for? Dan, I hear his voice in my head every time I feel like I'm not ready. I hear Eric asking, are you going to do this one day? 
And the answer is yes. And then I think, well, what am I waiting for? And I would, I would pose that question to your wife. I would also say there's a psychologist, Bob Boyce, who studied people who kind of live their lives in procrastination, which is graduate students trying to finish a thesis or a dissertation. And he found in some randomized controlled experiments that just training people to write in 15-minute blocks led them to finish faster. And that they had all these excuses of, well, you can't, I mean, I can barely get a sentence out in 15 minutes. I need to wait until I have a three-hour window carved out. And he, he taught them just to ignore that and say, you know what, I can put together a, a rapid outline. I could write a shitty first draft of a paragraph. And then the, what that did is I think it cured them of some of their perfectionism because they couldn't do something perfect in that tiny window, but they made these little bits of progress. And over time, those turned into theses and dissertations and books. Yes, this is a key strategy you've talked about publicly, carving out small windows of time. And I'm actually literally, when we're finished with this podcast, going to go gently introduce that notion to my wife. I'm ready to take the blame. Okay, but I will blame you. Let's talk about a few other strategies for dealing with procrastination. One of them is imagining failing spectacularly. How would that help? I don't know if it does, but I can tell you that anecdotally, I have, yeah, I guess, I, Dan, I'm a defensive pessimist sometimes. I feel like most of the day, I'm more of a, an optimist. I kind of envision the great outcome I'm hoping for, and then I, I try to make it happen. But I guess in areas where I'm, I'm procrastinating, it's often because I'm afraid it's not going to go well, and, and defensive pessimism kicks in. And then I, I, I'm the person who like, wakes up a week before the TED Talk, having just had a nightmare that not only was my talk a disaster, but all my other videos were taken off the internet because there's no way that I could have possibly delivered those. Like the person who bombed this talk could not be, like, it must have been a, an actual imposter, a fraud, a clone. And I find that obviously I wake up in a panicked, cold sweat in the moment. But as I think about that, it really brings me back down to earth because I realize that has never happened. Yeah, I've stumbled a ton of times on stage. Sige, sorry, I've even stumbled right now. <laughs> but <laughs> at this point, I've probably given, I don't know, five, 10,000 talks between teaching and speaking and fireside chats. And I've never literally just crashed and burned. And so imagining that scenario makes me realize that like, the worst case scenario that I'm worried about, it's not that bad. Does that work for you or does did the, did the panic attack change that equation? Yes, because I have crashed and burned. That wasn't bad. That was probably the best thing that's ever happened to your career. I was actually freaking out about freaking out about something recently. And then I was like, well, <laughs> if I have another panic attack on the air, I could probably turn that into something too. So who knows? It's on brand, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, Dan, obviously that that says something about your character and your ability to turn a traumatic experience into a source of insight and personal growth. But in all seriousness, right, you, you, in some ways, this is even a better strategy for you than for me, because you live the actual worst case scenario that people are terrified of. And it turned out to, I think, be a net positive for you. Yes. In the long run. Yes. I think that's true with so many of the things we fear. It's not true for all of them, for sure. I'd be hard pressed to make a case for losing a child. But I often, with a lesser order of magnitude fears, it happens and it's really not that bad. That's a really interesting point. So I guess the, the, the failures that we fear that are related to competence or performance, you think those mostly turn out to be beneficial? Often turn out to be beneficial. And I think it's about how you handle it. You outlined a strategy before for dealing with failure by 
depersonalizing it, decoupling it from the notion that you are inherently a failure and looking at like, what could I have done better? What were the market forces or the exogenous forces out of my control that impacted how it was received? And, and then applying that to the next project. I think that is possible with pretty much any kind of failure or mishap. I think you're right. Let me just talk about a few other strategies for procrastination. You mentioned something called pre-commitment. Yes. So this is, I think for a lot of people, this is essentially having an accountability buddy, right? And saying, hey, like you could, you could have your wife commit to sitting down and writing at certain times, right? And you could also build in a little incentive, incentive structure there. There's, a, there's some great experiments where you ask people about the charity or cause they loathe the most. And then they actually will, will make a small pre-donation. So like, let's say you're up in arms about gun violence and you hate the NRA. You might give somebody 20 bucks and say, if I don't follow through on meeting this deadline or if I don't show up and write every day this week at this time, I want you to donate my 20 to the NRA. And that can light a fire under you. Another thing you've talked about is for procrastinators to think about when they're doing the work. They might have told themselves a story about, I'll have to do it first thing in the morning, but for night owls, it's actually better to restructure your day. I'll pause in case you want to say something about that, but there was another question I wanted to ask you. You just sparked a, a quick thought for me, which is, we live in a world that favors morning people. And I think one of the reasons I'm a procrastinator is I'm a morning person. And I wake up ready to go, and I feel like I do my freshest, clearest, best work right away. And because of the way that the world is structured, right, like we start school early, we start work early, the poor night owls among us, they are significantly more likely to procrastinate because their circadian rhythms actually put them in, them in a position where they, they tend to do their optimal work in the late afternoon or sometimes even in the, the evenings or the, uh, the overnights. And I think that we should, we should think long and hard about actually reimagining the workday and life cycles to better accommodate the circadian rhythms of night owls because we're, we're basically missing out on their, their best creative thinking. I'm glad you sneaked that in. What I was going to say is that there's a kind of deep hack that you, you, you recommend for procrastination, which is that it, it, it's really about not managing your workflow as, as much as it is about managing your negative emotions. Yeah, there's some really powerful work in psychology by Fuchsia Sirwa and Tim Pitchell, where they've shown that we think procrastination is a time management problem. It's not. It's an emotion management problem. What causes people to procrastinate is they have unpleasant feelings that they associate with a particular task. Very few people procrastinate on things they love to do, right? You procrastinate when something is frustrating or confusing or difficult or anxiety-provoking or just plain boring. And I think one of the ways that you can you can try to curb a little bit of your procrastination, which we all do, even as a procrastinator, I procrastinate on grading. I procrastinate on, on taxes and administrative work because I just don't like it. And if it were up to me, like bureaucracy just would not exist in the world. Knowing that, I then can say, well, what are the, the contributing factors to that boredom? And are there ways that I can either change it or I can reward myself for powering through a boring task? I'll sometimes, Dan, like one of my favorite things to do is when I'm looking at the clock, I'm like, okay, it's 9 p.m., haven't started my grading yet. I'll say, okay, like on the next grading task I have, if I finish it before dinner, then I'm going to give myself that 9 p.m. window to like, 
I, I will reward myself. I'll wa- like I'll watch Severance, or I will give myself an excuse to read some sci-fi. And that always sort of gives me an extra little bit of motivation to get through the task I don't like to land on one I do. Coming up, Adam talks about why it might be better to advise people to follow their values rather than their passions. And finally, Adam asks me to rate his interview performance, which leads to some soul searching from both of us. That's coming up after this. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me, and in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. This is a testament to you. There are so many other things we could have talked about. There's guests you've had on recently who talk about things that were would be right in the sweet spot for this show, from goal setting to human delusion to imposter syndrome to pushing your limits to the idea of not following your passions, all of which to say as a kind of credit to you that I didn't get too far in my agenda because you're so damn interesting, and also as a kind of tease for your new show or new-ish show, Rethinking which is produced by the good folks over at TED. Anything else before I let you go that you want to remind people that you've made and put out into the world that they should go look at? No, you've, you've already been too generous in, <laughs> in promoting too many things I've done over the years, Dan. I feel bad that we didn't get to your other topics. Well, let's just, there's just one. Let's just do a minute or two on not following your passions. I worry because I often advise people, I think perhaps incorrectly, to, that that you should listen to the things that you're excited about and and think about that when you're pursuing life goals and professional goals, but apparently that's bad advice. <laughs> it's incomplete advice. 
and sometimes steers people in an unhelpful direction. How about that? So there's there's some work by Carol Dweck and her colleagues, which shows that when you tell people to follow their passion, they tend to approach it with a fixed mindset. And they think that their passion is something out there in the world waiting to be discovered. And the problem with that is it's hard to be passionate about things you suck at. Mm. <laughs> uh, and you you often need to build up a certain level of skill or mastery before you really find the, the joy and the love in an activity. And so people will give up on something that they're not good at it at first or something that they don't enjoy at first, not realizing that it, their passion could grow with progress. And this has been demonstrated with students and as well as with entrepreneurs, that as you build up competence and success, passion is a consequence of, of performance, not just a cause. So I think we have to be careful there. I think the other, the other reason I want to be careful about follow your passion is it's just not practical for some people. Mm. Like my passion was as a kid to make the NBA. <laughs> I started high school under five feet tall. Not going to happen. And I think the, the practicality of a job needing to support a family and a lifestyle, I think the, the practicality of knowing that not everyone has the raw talent to make their passion their career means we should be cautious. I think what we should probably encourage people to do is to follow their values. I think that there, there's some great work on this by Jan Yachimowicz and colleagues where they show that basically that the passion can wax and wane because what you found enjoyable today may not be that fun and exciting to you in 10 years. Maybe you get bored of it or it gets repetitive, but meaning tends to last. That if you focus on what gives you a sense of purpose, which more than anything else is helping other people, then that tends to, to really maintain your, your level of motivation and commitment over time. And so I like the idea of, of saying, maybe follow your purpose rather than your passion. Well said, and I'm going to be able to get you out on time because you, you, <laughs> you, you said it all so I, well. I, so I guess quickly. your anchor habits are alive and well, Dan. <laughs> My anchor habits will never die. Really appreciate you doing this. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I always learn new things from the questions you ask and the insights you share. So uh, this was this was my built-in learning excuse this week, since I don't have a, an interview this week. I'm glad it wasn't your built-in failure time. <laughs> well, you, you should judge. All right, so give me your quick zero to 10, how did this conversation go? And what's the one thing I could do better as a podcast guest? Honestly, no notes. I don't nope, have any notes. Nope. I think you're acceptable. Not acceptable? Unacceptable. Okay. Uh, I want a zero to 10, and I want one note. And I will, I will grease the wheels here by, by giving a note, which is I, I often make this mistake when I'm the guest, and I think I, fe I felt like I made it today. I think a bunch of my answers could have been half as long, and we could have done more back and forth with you riffing on things I said rather than you teeing up kind of things for me to comment on, and then we move on. I wouldn't have said that. Like, I, I think I could have made more conversation, less interview. I, okay. I, I wouldn't have said that. A lot of my guests are Dharma teachers, and so they go really long. And I've really trained myself not to interrupt, to listen, because I, uh, the audience rewards me for doing that. So I don't, at least this audience rewards me for just letting people go long, because usually, almost always, what they're saying is so damn useful. And if it isn't, we edit it down. You are, for a supposedly impatient person, you are a remarkably patient listener. I've been trained by actually listening to what the audience likes. I used to interrupt and jump in a lot, and, and I know that when I listen to podcasts, I hate that, when the, when the host is jumping in a lot. I'm, I'm listening to the episode in no small part because I want to hear what the guest has to say. So, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you a nine, and I'll say the only note, but I didn't really 
know that I would have wanted this until you yourself brought it up is, and I don't feel like this is some big shortcoming of yours, but maybe that's because I don't know you well enough, but you talked about yourself as a, perhaps at times being a performance robot. I don't see you that way, but I do very much value what Brene Brown would call sort of vulnerability done right, where you talk about things that are below the neckline. And I say this less as a note, as more, more of a compliment. I am interested enough in you that I would want more of that from you. That's great feedback. Well, first of all, thank you for the nine. Uh, I'll try to believe it. And that uh, as a recovering perfectionist still, I will say that met my standard. So I'll, t- <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Apparently I'm a better podcast guest than I was diver. So that's, that's good to know. I, I love your note. I think more vulnerability is something I could always do more of. And I think, yeah, just thinking out loud about it, I think one of the mistakes I make, which which was what Brene would call armor from from much earlier in my life and career is when I do show vulnerability, it's often about past failures and mistakes, mm. right? So I talk about my early struggles as a diver, but you know, eventually I overcame them and I got pretty good. I talk about my early struggles teaching, but I've become a successful teacher. I talk about my early fears of public speaking, but I've mostly gotten over those. And I think what you're highlighting for me in the way that you articulated that feedback is current vulnerability, things I'm struggling with now. Yes. That is an excellent note. And I'm really glad I pushed back on your no notes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you did too, because a note I've gotten is that sometimes I don't give enough feedback. So I think that's an accurate note. And I will say also that you're really encouraging me to do some meta vulnerability. Like, I'm not good at vulnerability. (laughs) Yes, but that I'm not. I'm not. That's a fact. That also could be a kind of armor. It is. It is. I I think that I'm always wanting to make sure that I have something to offer and too much of my identity is anchored in wanting to have knowledge or expertise to share as opposed to relatable experience and emotions. Right. And I, but I, I do think that's defensible and this is a skill. <laughs> this is a skill that you can get better at. And Ooh. by the way, you don't have to, I understand why it's in some ways, it can be more of more service to talk about past struggles because you've got your shtick down on it. Like you've learned from it and therefore you can talk about it in a way There's that a is lesson, useful. And I'm a teacher. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's scarier to talk about current issues because you don't have a pad answer. You haven't ne- necessarily learned from it. But I think the lesson that you can teach by talking about current struggles is the talking about the current struggles, is being open and about the areas where you're not at your best. I think that's exactly, I don't want to say it's exactly right. I think it's wise and extremely helpful because exactly right is perfectionist. Like, yes, Dan, you just like, you nailed the feedback and I'm giving you an A plus for your feedback. But no, I think it's really on point for me. And I like the idea of thinking about vulnerability as a skill that... I I never thought about this before, but you you now have me thinking about what lessons can I teach not only to others but to myself, right? As I do it, about how to how to talk about struggles, and in particular, like there are lots of ways to do that that don't cast doubt on your competence. And I need to give that more thought. I love this. That sounds like a key obstacle for you is casting doubt on your competence. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think in, in the the psychology of status. Like I learned like, when I wasn't popular as a kid, I learned to to earn respect and admiration 
through excellence, I guess, in the classroom and as a diver, and then through trying to be kind and helpful to others. And the idea that someone would think that I'm not smart or not talented at the things I've invested in in trying to, to master, and the idea that somebody would think I'm not caring and I'm not concerned about others, like those, those would cut me really deep. Mm. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely some armor on both of those fronts that I need to learn how to remove. Except for you're removing it right now by by all the words you've just uh, uttered, and I think that wait, a- you're going to play this? <laughs> no, you should absolutely play this. I'm just kidding. This, is, I mean, but this, Dan, this is the kind of conversation that I think we could have had more of if I talked a little bit less and we did more back and forth, right? Because it goes off the the arc of you want to deliver some practical lessons for managing perfectionism and procrastination, but it really speaks to the the deep challenges that a lot of us face, and I think that when I like. We we've all, we all have these these past hauntings, right? Of like like me proving my competence is no longer relevant. Like full stop. I know that, right? Intellectually, I don't feel it viscerally in every situation, and I still find myself in moments where I'm like, I have to to make sure it's clear that like I have I have useful information. I'm like, why? Like, I, like how many books do I need to sell? <laughs> <laughs> like, how many podcast listeners will one day lead me to say? Like, yes, but it's it's not about that. It's not like, I don't doubt that I have something of value to offer. I don't want to end up missing the mark for the audience mm-hmm. and having them feel like I didn't get what I wanted or I didn't learn anything. And that I think is where the armor comes from is this performance might not be up to standard. Yeah, I totally, I totally get it. And it goes so deep from you, you protected yourself in social situations by excellence and helpfulness. And if you fall short of those standards, it's scary. I get, and, and I think where we're landing is actually there is excellence and helpfulness and service in the mere act of saying, I'm a fuck up on this currently. Yeah, that's so true. And it's why I was, I think, 13 minutes late to this recording. Uh, because despite at least years of Allison encouraging me to be on time more often, I still screw it up more often than not. And I feel a little guilty about it, apparently not guilty enough. But like that's an example of an ongoing struggle that I've thought about a ton, I've read a lot of research on. I haven't cracked it. Hmm. And I have not figured out how to manage myself effectively to be on time. And I have lots of very well-articulated excuses for why this continues to happen. But maybe I'm going to tee this up as a, an, a, a current struggle that I want to talk about more and then kind of maybe work through out loud. And maybe, Dan, you can help me with that. But I'm also mindful of the fact that I committed to try meditation after a certain book tour, and I haven't done it. So question is, are you going to hold me accountable on this one where you have failed to hold me accountable on meditation? I really resist holding people accountable on meditation. But uh, I asked you to do it. I know, I know, I know, I know. Just because I was, you, you made the best argument I've ever heard, and I was curious about whether you could unlock a version of it that I actually thought I might benefit from. What's the best version for you of being held accountable on either meditation or punctuality? I think there are, there are two things. One is just to check in and ask me if I've made any progress. And the other is to offer something I haven't tried yet. With meditation, it would be a quick exercise to do or a coach to, to chat with. With punctuality, it would be maybe giving, giving me a goal or a habit to test out. All right, duly noted. I'm on your team now. <laughs> Count me as a coach. <laughs> Dan Harris enlisted.
Always. Such a pleasure to talk to you. I have, it didn't bother me at all that you were whatever minutes late. And I'm sorry for holding you late on the backside. No, this is me now trying to make up for it, right? Yeah. By saying, okay, I promised you a certain amount of time. You have nothing we're to make up for. <laughs> nothing. All right, I'm going to let you go. But everybody go listen to Adam's podcasts, plural. Thank you again, Adam. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again to Adam Grant. Love having him on the show. Go check out his new podcast. That's Rethinking with Adam Grant. Highly recommend. Want to thank everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And of course, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here... You're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer land. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.